Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The one constant through all the years, Ray, has been baseball. Welcome to another edition of Red Sox Beat on CLNS Radio. My name is Jess Thomas, alongside Lauren Campbell. No Jared Scally today, but we do have a guest, which we'll get to in just a minute. We'll make the suspense build for a couple minutes before we bring him on. Uh, you can follow Red Sox Beat on Twitter at Red Sox underscore Beat. On Facebook at face, uh, Red Sox Beat Podcast. Just type that in on Facebook. You can find us on Tumblr. And make sure you rate, review, and subscribe us on iTunes and Stitcher. As always, this episode of Red Sox Beat is brought to you by Casper. Casper is an online retailer of premium mattresses for a fraction of the price because everyone deserves a great night's sleep. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash Celtics and enter promo code Celtics. We got a lot of stuff going on here today to talk about, mostly Hall of Fame related, but we'll get to all of that, a couple little tidbits, notes, and signings and whatnot here. But uh, first... Well, Lauren, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing pretty well. Um, well, thank you for getting our guest here on today. And our guest is Chris Villani of the Boston Herald and WEI. Chris, how you doing? Doing well, guys. How are you? Good. Good. Nice to have a guest. Fun, fun uh, week to to talk about some some Hall of Fame stuff. So. Um, yeah, we'll just jump right in. At first, I missed the last week's show, so I'll definitely get my thoughts on this. But first, Chris, what do you what do you think of the the two men, Ken Griffey Jr., Mike Piazza, who got into the Hall of Fame? Were they the right guys? Should more have gotten in? What are your thoughts on it? Well, definitely those two guys are deserving, and and I feel so old. The fact that Ken Griffey Jr., my favorite player when I was a kid, is now old enough to be in the Hall of Fame makes me feel old. But uh, obviously, Griffey was a, a no-doubt first-ballot kind of guy, setting a record for, for the most votes uh, and the highest percentage ever, actually, for a, for a Hall of Famer, and, and well-deserved. I mean, he was one of, uh, simply put, just one of the best uh, that, that I've ever seen uh, outside of Bonds, probably the best position player in my lifetime, um, and, and a guy that just made the game look incredibly easy. You know, somebody like Mike Piazza, he certainly gets a, a bit of a boost given his position, you know, best offensive catcher of all time. Um, and, and I think the fact that it took him four shots to get in was a little bit surprising, but it's also part of the speculative cloud of PEDs. He's one of those guys, and Jeff Bagwell uh, falls into this uh, category as well, that doesn't have a direct tie to PEDs, but there are whispers and innuendo and speculation, and you know the Dan Shaughnessy's of the world decide they want to play true detective and, and figure out who looked right or didn't look right to them, which I think is, is ridiculous. But that, that hurt him a bit, and he didn't get in, and Bagwell came up a few votes short because of that. So uh, I think Jeff Bagwell's a Hall of Famer. To me, Trevor Hoffman is a Hall of Famer. Kurt Schilling uh, is a Hall of Famer. Uh, Clemens, Bonds, I think they should get in. I think you got to judge guys based on the context of their era. Um, and, you know, frankly, uh, th- there are a lot of uh, guys who uh, either cheated the game or were just less than scrupulous characters that were already in Cooperstown. Uh, to me, Edgar Martinez uh, is a Hall of Famer, best designated hitter uh, of all time outside of probably David Ortiz. And, you know, there's a few other guys I think you can make a case for. Everybody seems to have their pet guy. Uh, mine would probably be Billy Wagner. Um, who, if you look at his numbers, is pretty similar to Trevor Hoffman outside of the save statistic. So I was happy that Billy Wagner at least got uh, 10, 11% of the vote. He had enough to stay on the ballot. 
Uh, I don't know if he'll ever get into the Hall of Fame, but I'm hopeful that over the next uh, nine years, voters will take a good hard look at his candidacy, too. So, Chris. Yeah, definitely. I was going to say, I'm so happy that you said Kurt Schilling, because, Jess, I know you don't think he belongs in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, I wanted to get to that. Chris, do you think that his regular season numbers are good enough, or is it just basically based on the postseason? Is that enough? Well, the postseason certainly helps him. There's no question about that, and I don't think you could ignore uh, what he's done in the postseason. I mean, to me, the playoffs are like extra credit. They can really only help you in the same way that, just to pick a low-hanging fruit example, we don't hold it against Ted Williams that he only played in one postseason and he wasn't overly impressive. Um, you know, I, I don't think you can just discount what Kurt Schilling has done uh, in over the course of the season in the postseason, but over the course of his career, rather. But if you look at his regular season numbers, I mean, this is a guy that finished second in the Cy Young voting three times, was a dominant pitcher well into his 30s, um, was a, a key part of successful teams. And that's not just about pitching in the postseason. That's about pitching well uh, in the regular season. You, know, you go back, he was a very effective pitcher um, when he was in his 20s for that uh, 93 Phillies team that ended up going to the NLCS. We all saw what he did uh, later in his career when he was an all-star pitcher in Philadelphia and then in Arizona, helping them win a World Series. And if not for his own teammate, Randy Johnson, probably would have added a Cy Young or two. Uh, and then in Boston, that kind of put a cap on his career. But outside of the wins total, which I think is a bit of an overrated way to, to measure a starting pitcher's success, his numbers, his ERA, his whip, his war, his strike, his ERA plus, his strikeouts per nine, his strikeouts to walk, they all fall well within uh, the, the criteria that's been established by other guys that are in the Hall of Fame. And, yeah, I mean, if it comes down to a borderline candidacy, I think you can look at what he's done in the postseason, helping the Red Sox win a World Series, helping the Diamondbacks win a World Series, NLCS MVP in, in Philadelphia going back to 93, and say that's uh, enough to warrant a Hall of Fame candidacy. So to me, yeah, Schilling's a, a Hall of Fame guy. All right, you, you sold me. I, I, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I obviously wanted to be because obviously he's a Red Sox fan. Sure. I'm obviously a, a Schilling fan, at least on the, on the Diamond. Um, so then... Okay, so I want to get your thoughts on this, because I, on the show before uh, the Hall of Fame uh, vote came out, I said that Jeff Bagwell should be a, you know, suspected steroid user who should be in the Hall of Fame, because we were discussing, you know, hall, uh, steroids versus versus non-steroids and everything. But, so, Mike Piazza makes it, Jeff Bagwell doesn't this year. They're both suspected, both not really proven at all. So... What do you think is the reason that Piazza got in and Bagwell didn't this time? I, you know, I stopped trying to get inside the collective minds of the BBWAA a long time ago. But you're right. Uh, those two guys are sort of linked, right? In the same way that Barry Bonds and Roger Clemens are linked in a lot of ways. You know, the generationally great players uh, that are, in their case, pretty much confirmed uh, to, to have used PEDs. But Bagwell and Piazza are absolutely linked. They're both great players. To me, they're both Hall of Fame guys, as I said. And there's no real hard evidence to to link. It's all uh, circumstantial. It's whispers. It's rumors. Did Jeff Bagwell use steroids? I have no idea. And frankly, neither does anybody else who's uh, voting for him uh, or not voting for him. You know, I'm heartened by the fact that he will get in. I'm guessing he gets in next year. Um, I don't have the ballot in front of me, but I don't think there's a, a no-doubt, surefire first ballot guy next year. Uh, I'd have to double-check that. But he had about 71 72% Bagwell did, so he probably gets in next year. So it's a little weird. Uh, but I think the biggest thing that helps Piazza, again, relative to Bagwell, is just his position. If you're evaluating Mike Piazza based upon other catchers, it's not even close as to being an offensive powerhouse from that particular position. If Piazza were a first baseman, you'd still have Hall of Fame numbers, but it might not be quite the same context for the discussion that it is for him as a catcher. So Bagwell, to me, is a Hall of Famer, and I don't think there's a question he'll get in next year. He'll get the, I don't know, 15, 20 votes, however many more he needs to get over 75%. Yeah, I hope he gets it. I mean, 449 homers, he had a heck of a career, all with the same team. I think he deserves it, too. So, like you said, being so close, just a couple percent away, I don't I don't see why he wouldn't at some point, if not next year. Um, I think it'll be next year. That's my guess. Yeah, I think so, too. Yeah, I'm right there with you. I don't think there's any reason he won't get in next year. Especially if Piazza does, being a so-called steroid user, so... I think the so-called stuff's stupid anyway, but I don't really want to talk about that. <laughs> so, 
Chris, let's move on. Um, different Hall of Fame, not baseball, but Red Sox Hall of Fame. Uh, this week, Tim Wakefield, Jason Veritek, um, they're obviously the two big ones getting into the Red Sox Hall of Fame. You have Larry Lucchino and Ira Flagstad, or Flagstad, or whatever his name is. He pitched like 85 years ago, so. <laughs> but anyway, the guys that we want to talk about are Tim Wakefield and Jason Veritek, so I kind of just wanted you to reflect on their careers, and I'm assuming you aren't surprised at all that they're in the Red Sox Hall of Fame, but just, just kind of talk about the two of them. No, they're really obvious um, Red Sox Hall of Famers, definitely. I mean, they both fall pretty well short of the, uh, you know, the Baseball Hall of Fame, but they're, they're guys that were transcendent players here in Boston. They helped the Red Sox win, uh, you know, you get back to the to the World Series and win it. Um, and, and, you know, for a guy like Wakefield, what a career uh, he had, you know, to be a position player, uh, to make the transition, to throw this weird, funky pitch, and and, and then to bounce back and, and come back after 2003, you know, giving up that home run to Aaron Boone, and to be a part of the World Series win the next year, I think was pretty special. And the, the crazy thing about Wakefield is he had this um, uh, lasting sort of quirky legacy that was as weird as the pitch that he threw. Every freaking kid in the, in Massachusetts in New England has tried to throw a knuckleball over the past 15 years. You know, when I've been umpiring youth baseball, it seems like every kid tries to throw a knuckleball. I mean, very few of them actually have any success whatsoever in doing it. But I remember mentioning it to a buddy of mine who lives in a different part of the country, and he says, who the heck tries to throw a knuckleball? You know, what, what kid would even think to try that? I said, a kid that grew up watching Tim Wakefield pitch and, and have a major league career based upon that, uh, based upon that pitch. So uh, Wakefield is, is also a guy that's always been incredibly generous um, in terms of whether it's the Jimmy Fund, uh, any kind of charitable uh, situations. He's been fantastic with that kind of stuff. And you always appreciate uh, the guys that go above and beyond. And, you know, Veritek, he, he's the captain. He's the captain. And he'll definitely be, I think, remembered more for anything than for uh, decking Alex Rodriguez during the 2004 season. But, you know, he's a lot more than that. First of all, a very, very good offensive catcher. We talk about getting offense from that position, uh, which you don't always do. And Veritek absolutely gave the Red Sox a ton of offense from that position, and a, a guy that was uh, a great leader uh, within that clubhouse to the point where it seems like, you know, when there's been managerial issues over the past few years, his name keeps coming up among fans, um, even though he doesn't have any experience uh, in that realm uh, whatsoever. And I think that's just due to the respect and deserved respect that fans have and, and appreciation for his leadership. Yeah, absolutely. Like you said, Chris, there's just something special about them. And with Veritek all the, the no-hitters that he caught, he's, he's caught over almost 1,500 games from 15 years, and he's the only catcher to catch four no-hitters, and he's a huge part with 04, 07, like there's, I, he's such a great leader and such a good voice, and was a good voice in, in the clubhouse, just somebody you really want as your captain, and with Wakefield, it's just 17 seasons, knuckleball, um, he pitched in eight, eight postseasons, so there's, I just don't see how like two, two more deserving people than these two. Yeah, I, I, I the two of them, that kind of, kind of put them together, you know, because people people think of them as together because they pitched and caught to each other for so long and played for so long. They're kind of two guys that I was always like, are they ever gonna retire? Because it seemed like they should never retire, especially Wakefield, because he just kept pitching and pitching and pitching and pitching the slow knuckleball allowed him to last longer, but. Veritek lasted for a, a long time too, and it was just kind of when they retired, I was like, "Oh man, like they're actually going to retire. Like we're not going to see these players anymore because you get so accustomed to seeing them. You know, Tech back there year after year after year after year, catching a billion games, and Wakefield, you know, getting 186 wins with the Red Sox, 200 overall, and just always being there through the good and the bad. He was such a consistent player, and you always knew that he was going to give you his best effort." He, even if it was a bad outing, you know, he'd come back the next game and, and pitch well. So there's two guys that you just always relied on, and they were so good, and it was it was so tough to see them go. But obviously, seeing them get into the Red Sox Hall of Fame is, is an awesome moment for for me and for, I'm sure, all Red Sox fans, because I think you can probably, probably go around and ask a lot of Red Sox fans, and you're probably not going to find a whole lot of people who don't like those two guys. No, two of the most likable guys they've had, I mean... Um, more so than even somebody like Manny Ramirez or David Ortiz, who were 
both far superior players. Uh, and Ortiz is pretty well beloved in, in Boston too, but he's got his detractors. Uh, you never really had any of that with, with Wakefield or with Veritek. And, um, yeah, the fact that they're going into the Red Sox Hall of Fame is, is certainly, uh, not a surprise to, uh, to anybody. Along with, of course, Ira Flagstead, who's getting shafted in this conversation, but I'm sure he was a hell of a guy too. I was about to ask you that, Chris. Why does he get in like ninety years later? Like, who is he? Even is this guy? And why? Why did this happen so late? I I don't know. I, I don't know much about him other than uh, what I've read, just out of curiosity. Over you know, since uh, uh, hearing about it, but I know he debuted uh, right around World War One. You know, played through the twenties. Uh, he's been dead for God years and years and years, I and mean, probably uh, sixty, seventy years or more. Um, but yeah, I'm. I'm Sure, he was a heck of a player. I really can't tell you much about him. He's got kind of a cool name. I mean, Ira Flagstead's a pretty cool name, so I'd put him in the Red Sox Hall of Fame just for that. <laughs> well, I'm looking him up right now, and he actually has my birthday, which is kind of cool. He was born in 1893. <laughs> he died in 1940, so he's been dead for, yeah, like 75 years. Oh, great. He didn't live very long. No, he was only 46. 46. And yeah. I'm looking at his stats here. He only batted 290 with 40 career home runs, so he must have done something other than playing, that allowed him to get into the Hall of Fame, right? I guess. I mean, it's the Red Sox Hall of Fame, too, so who knows? I mean, yeah. he played, too. Well, he would have played after the Red Sox uh, dynasty of the of the team, so he really didn't even play on championship teams. I, I have no idea. Your guess is as good as mine, but good for him. Good for the yeah. flag. <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just agree with it and move on. <laughs> exactly. All right, Chris, let's move into some, some other baseball here before we jump back to the Red Sox and before we let you go. Um, Chris Davis. So he ended up finally signing with the team, and he went back to the Orioles. Seven years, $161 million, after Buck Showalter made kind of a funny comment about how he can walk into Target and buy whatever he wants. How much money do you really need? So I don't know if Chris Davis took that to heart and then decided to, to agree to the deal or what happened, but just wanted to get your thoughts on the deal and then him coming back to the Orioles and what that kind of means for the division. Well, it's a great deal for Chris Davis, uh, no doubt about that. I mean, the Orioles... Um, Really, really overspent uh, on this. I mean, I, I like Davis to an extent. I do think he's a bit of a flawed hitter. Um, you know, just a couple of years ago, we dealt with some injuries, could barely hit 200. Uh, he's had two above average uh, years in, in his career. I mean, he's a one-time All-Star. Um, his best season by far was a couple of years ago in, in 2013 uh, when he, he led the league in home runs and, and led the league in RBIs. But he's just, to me, not the kind of guy that's going to pay off on that kind of an investment. You know, what does it mean for the division? Well, it's certainly a, a power bat. Uh, it's kind of a one-trick player, one-tool player in Baltimore. It may give them a lift for a couple of years. But I think we saw in Boston the, the peril uh, of giving, you know, not nearly this much money, but decent money to uh, a guy that's just going to provide power for you if he doesn't and I'm talking about Hanley Ramirez, if he doesn't, he doesn't really provide much value. So this is a product of a couple of things. I mean, number one, the Orioles, like everybody else, are seeing a tremendous amount of revenue come in through national TV dollars, local TV dollars, and they're going to places they've never gone in terms of spending. And the Orioles are absolutely going in that direction this year. And second, it's a product of just how little power there is in Major League Baseball. If you're a guy that can... Uh, hit home runs that can provide legitimate middle-of-the-order power, you're going to be considered a valuable commodity, and certainly Baltimore treated him this way. But this is one, and I'm not uh, any guy that's opposed to big contracts. This is one that I'm very, very skeptical is going to pay off in the long run for the Orioles, and I don't know how much it does to shift the balance of power uh, long-term in the in the American League East. It's something that Baltimore needed to go out and do, I guess, and did it. Man, that price tag was pretty shocking when you're talking about a guy that uh, is a career 240-250 hitter. Yeah, I'm kind of skeptical on this contract as well. He'll be 30 in March, and seven years is just a long time to commit to anyone, whether they're 23 or whether they're 30. And so be 37 by the time this contract's done. They're going to pay him $17 million a year, I think it is, or for the first six years or something. And it just sends the, the Orioles payroll just through the roof and he's like you said he's not this like powerhouse hitter he's two career 240 hitter he's not this huge guy but apparently reportedly the Orioles made an offer to Yoana Cespedes and then Chris Davis signed so maybe it was just like he was just like crap I need to sign with this team and they're going to give me what I want or he's just going to hold out and obviously 
they gave him what he wanted. I just I think they overpaid for a guy who's not gonna give them the production. I think that they're looking for. It was kind of just, crazy too because I thought the Orioles had had moved on. You know, late in the week, it seemed like um, they were going in a different direction. But uh, it could also be the the Scott Boris effect. Who knows? But, uh, he certainly got his client paid. I know a lot of that money's deferred, but still, uh, that's uh, that's some big time dollars that are coming his way. Yeah, I don't. I've always been skeptical of of long deals. It seems like they never work out. Anything longer than like four or five years just always seems to just fizzle out at the end, be completely not worth it. Or like two or three years into the deal, people are like, "Wow, this guy's not nearly as good as the contract he got." And only only like a third of the way through the contract, they just they seem like they never work out. So. To see another one like this, a guy who's going to be 30 soon, another seven-year deal, like Lauren said, 36, 37 years old. He's had a couple really good seasons, but average, not really there. Tons of strikeouts, and we've discussed this on previous shows. Is strikeouts worth all of the home runs if you're getting you know 180 to 210 strikeouts a year? Maybe, but I don't really think it's worth it, and it's certainly not worth all this money and and the amount of time that he's there is just, I don't know, I'm not a huge fan of, of the strikeout guys, even if they give you good production. No, just like I said, like kind of a flawed hitter. I mean, he was healthy this past year and, and struck out more than 200 times. I mean, basically one in every three times he came to the plate, right? One in every three at-bats uh, resulted in a strikeout. And that's, um, you know, it's a tough ratio to, to pay for. But again, there's just so few power bats compared to when – you know, those Hall of Fame guys we were talking about a few minutes ago when they were in their prime, that that's the commodity that you're going to, you know, overpay for. And um, the Red Sox ran into it with Hanley Ramirez, and uh, to an even greater extent, the Orioles run into it here with Chris Davis. One one thought on Davis before we move on from him, Chris. Do you Did you ever, because I know there's a couple of thoughts about it for a moment, did you ever want Chris Davis and the Red Sox or think they were going to get him or anything like that? Because we talked about that in the past. Uh, no and no. I, I don't think they were going to throw more money at offense, uh, especially a guy like Davis. And, and I don't think that he's uh, somebody who's really on their on their radar screen seriously. And I, and I didn't want to uh, see the Red Sox spending resources there. Uh, as much as you know, they can afford that kind of a contract, I think you'd look at where they've gone instead, uh, shoring up the bullpen, adding arms there, of course, adding a top of the rotation starter and spending a ton of money in David Price. I think that was money uh, much better spent than, than on somebody like Chris Davis. Yeah, no, that makes sense to me. We, we kind of tossed the idea around of, oh, well, maybe we should get, try to get rid of Hanley and get Chris Davis, or should we try Travis Shaw? We were kind of throwing out ideas, but I don't think any of us really ever thought that we'd actually get Chris Davis. So turns out we didn't. So actually, perfect segue that you gave me there um, into into the season since obviously we've exhausted these topics throughout the offseason, but not with you. So I just kind of, before you go, I, I want to get your thoughts on how the, the rotation will be for the Red Sox now that they have price, so how you see that turning out as compared to last year, and then how do you think the Hanley Ramirez situation is going to go at first base and how his offense is going to go. So two-part question. Sure. Go for yeah, it. starting with uh, price, I mean, I, I was a huge fan of the, the deal and we spent the past year, I feel like, on you know, sports radio and just talking about it as fans, um, saying that you need a top-of-the-rotation guy, and they got the best one available. Now, Boston fans, some of them are impossible to please and not happy about the cost and everything else, but if you're going to get top-level talent, which I would argue David Price is, I mean, look at what Chris Davis just got. That, that's the going rate. There's so much more money in baseball now. Um, you know, you look back at 2000 when Manny Ramirez signed his deal and A-Rod signed his first deal, it was about $3 billion in gross revenue in the game. That number has gone up about fourfold. So everybody is making more money. Uh, I'd rather see it in the players' pockets and the owners' pockets, to be honest, because it's not coming to ours. We know that. So I, I didn't mind the cost of the price deal. It's kind of a long-winded way of saying that. I think they did need that top-of-the-rotation guy, that true ace and maybe it takes a little bit of heat off Clay Buckholz and puts him in a spot where he can be a two or a three. It certainly takes pressure off Eduardo Rodriguez, who I think a lot of Red Sox fans were hoping might step into that ace role, which is probably an unfair thing uh, to, to pin on somebody his age. Not that he might not be able to do it, but to, to say, okay, he's got to be the guy this year, I think uh, would be unfair. And then you've got other guys, you know, re-signing Joe Kelly, maybe... You know, leave the porch light on for Rick Porcello. 
uh, having some kind of a bounce back year off the calamity that was 2015. So you've got a little bit more uh, flexibility at the back end. And now you can add depth. You know, seeing the Red Sox add this rotational depth was frustrating when they didn't have a top of the rotation guy. Now that they have that, I think you can add depth in your rotation and still be, um, you know, still be confident in the fact that you've got a 200 plus inning, uh, dominant, potentially dominant pitcher at the top of the rotation. As for Hanley Ramirez, I'm really skeptical on the Hanley to first base, uh, project. I think over the past two years, he's shown us two positions that he can't play. I uh, couldn't play shortstop very well. He was the worst in baseball statistically two years ago. And he was the worst outfielder in baseball last year. So, you know, now he's going to first base. And I think some people have this idea that, that first base is like their slow pitch softball league where you just take the fattest, most out of shape guy and stick him over there and it'll be fine. Um, I, I'm concerned. I, I really wonder how hard is he going to work on getting the footwork down? Uh, what kind of range, if any, is he going to have? And Pablo Sandoval and Xander Bogarts are not putting every throw on his chest. So is, is he going to be able to, uh, keep wayward throws, forget about just making a play and getting an out, but just keep in front of him, uh, prevent extra bases, prevent big innings. I mean, these are the kinds of things that now you've got to worry about. He could be handling 10, 15, 20 chances a game. Who knows? Uh, depending on the way things go in a particular night. So I- I'm really skeptical. I-, I think it's been a really good offseason to this point for Dave Dombrowski. To make it a great offseason, you would have to find some way to get rid of Hanley Ramirez. But as as you guys know, and I'm sure you've talked about a lot, that's easier said than done. Yeah, it's such a tough situation with, with Hanley. It's I just wish that they could figure out something for him because he was such a good player earlier in his career, and then they throw him in left field, and it's like he has no idea how to play baseball anymore, and I wouldn't be surprised. I'm hoping it, hoping it's going to be good since we're going to have to deal with it anyway, but I just can't see him going to first base and just having it be easy if he couldn't even come close to playing left field. I get that it's the infield, and he's played the infield for, for pretty much his whole career, but you know, getting off the bag, getting balls tossed into the pitcher, you know, fielding a lot of plays, catching all the balls, catching the dirt. I just don't, I don't see it being a good that's, situation. That's way too much responsibility for him. If he can't handle left field, he's not going to be able to handle first base. Probably not. And it's one more year where you know he can't be the primary designated hitter because Dave Ortiz is back for his swan song. So uh, if there's a way to, to move him, I, I think Dave Dombrowski is going to explore that between now and opening day. At the same time, I just I don't know if it's going to happen. I don't know how realistic it is. I mean, I guess everybody can be traded. We saw what happened with the Dodgers in 2012, and people are hoping for a similar kind of bailout with uh, with Hanley Ramirez. But um, I don't know if that's uh, I don't know if that's forthcoming. Do you, Chris? Do you want Hanley to be the DH after Ortiz retires, or do you want them to look elsewhere? I think I'd like him to look elsewhere. I mean, number one, Hanley Ramirez was streaky at best offensively last year. I mean, it's not just the fact that defensively he was uh, a train wreck for a good chunk of the year. It's also the fact that he really uh, had long stretches, frankly, where he was woefully ineffective at the plate and didn't give them the one commodity they were counting on from him, which was power, right-handed power. Uh, So that was frustrating. And on top of that, I think you want to get some flexibility, if possible, with that position. You know, be able to to rotate in a couple of different guys. A lot of teams go in that direction. The Red Sox are really um, somewhat archaic in in using one primary DH, but that's what they've done with David Ortiz, and understandably so. So I I still would like to see them find a way to get out from under that contract. I I just don't know uh, how plausible that really is. Yeah, that makes sense. I. Definitely, we're all in agreement on that, and I'm sure most Red Sox fans are after after the debacle of the last season. But uh, Chris, that was that's what we got for you. I just wanted to ask you one question because I'm interested sure. in it because I obviously listen to a lot of games on the radio, and you <laughs> contribute for WEI. How is that job? And and just tell me about it. Uh, it's interesting. Yeah, I, f- I fill in for Mike Bonansky from time to time. It's um, it's a cool gig. Uh, Dave and Joe have been great to work with, of course. Uh, Dave won't be there uh, this year, and um, Tim Neverett from uh, Pittsburgh is going to be uh, joining Joe Castiglione in the broadcast booth, so um, that'll be uh, cool to, to work with somebody new, as I'm sure I'll do from time to time uh, this year. But, but yeah, no, it's, it's a fun gig. The pregame show is pretty fast-paced, and then uh, after that, it's really just kind of sitting back and watching the game. Uh, not too, uh, not too much else. So, you know, a couple of school board updates and things like that. But uh, really, it's uh, you know about that pregame show. There's a lot of elements to it, 
um, and uh, a lot of quick elements. Like I said, it's pretty fast-paced. So uh, it, it's great, and it's a lot more fun when the team's competitive. There's nothing worse than doing a, a post-game Colin show, doing a Red Sox review in you know late August, mid-August, early September, and the team's out of it, and they've already gone into sell mode, and you're seeing young guys that you've barely seen before. Um, that can be frustrating. So hopefully, uh, at the very least, it, it's more competitive and more interesting going into uh, August, September, and dare we say October this coming year. Yeah, no, it seems like an awesome job. I, I know I'm jealous of, of it, and I've, <laughs> I listen to it a lot and listen to the pregame. I love pregame and postgame shows, so I've heard a lot of your stuff before, so it was, it was fun to have you on here on the show this week. My pleasure, guys. Anytime. All right, Chris. Thanks so much, and uh, we'll look forward to listening to you in the, in the regular season. <laughs> All right. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Take care. Thanks, Chris. Alrighty. There he goes. Okay. Well, Lauren, that was a lot of stuff we covered. It sure was. <laughs> so we got Chris Villani's take on uh, Baseball Hall of Fame, Red Sox Hall of Fame, Chris Davis, the Red Sox of 2016, and Haley Ramirez. All of that business. Some great thoughts. I, I enjoyed a lot of what he said there. Yeah, me too. I especially like that he agreed that Kurt Schilling should be in the Hall of Fame, and I'm glad that he has taking you over to the good side, because I know we talked at work that you were like, absolutely not. Like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and now you're like, yes. Maybe not yes, 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 but you're, you're, you'll get there. <laughs> well, I obviously like his, his uh, I mean, I love his postseason numbers, 11-2. and two, That's incredible. A couple mm-hmm. championships. I'm totally on board with that. I just didn't know if 216 wins is going to be enough, but I guess you put it all together, and it's pretty good. I don't know if he'll get in, though. It's, I mean, he's obviously not a popular guy off the mound as, as we know right he speaks way too much and says a lot of things that a lot of people disagree with but baseball wise maybe but it's just it's just people put all that stuff into consideration and they're so harsh with the personal stuff and i just feel like i just feel like he's not well liked enough to get in period baseball I aside said, i i have hope because jim rice got in he wasn't very well liked um true, i know completely different like numbers wise he had really good numbers but you know, he wasn't very well liked. He got in on his last chance, but um, yeah, like I think the whole 216 wins. I think that's the general opinion, which I understand completely. It's not. You look at other pitchers who have gotten in there and their wins, and it's like, wow, he's got like no wins compared to these other Hall of Famers. And but then you got to consider his postseason numbers, which I think, I mean, it's going to be a tough call. Just like you know, the personal things. I know the baseball writers love the personal aspect of it for whatever reason. And like Chris said, I'm not going to get try to get into their heads either. But I guess, you know, we'll wait and see. I, I have hope that he'll get in. I really want him to get in. And, but it's it's hard to think that if Jim Rice had so much trouble getting in, why would Kurt Schilling get in so easy? Right. right. Yeah, no, I, you're right about the, the Jim Rice and his, and his actions. He was not liked at all. He was pretty much just mean to, to reporters and... <laughs> And nobody really liked him, but great player, and he did get in. And obviously, he's loosened up now as as a as a broadcaster. He's a lot a lot calmer and not anything like he was when he was a player. Not that we know that much about that because we weren't watching then because we weren't alive. But <laughs> <laughs> kind of hard to watch when you're not alive. It is kind of hard to watch when you're not alive. But I did hear plenty of stuff about him, and I know that he wasn't pleasant. And he did get in, so we'll hope for Kurt. He got 52.3 percent this year, so we'll see what next year brings. I liked what what Chris said about Edgar Martinez because he only got 43 percent of the vote. But yeah, David Ortiz aside, he's he was the best DH for for a while, and I think he deserves to get in because you know he's. Different positions, you know, some positions get get less looked at, like bullpen and DH and positions like that. But being the second best DH ever, shouldn't Martinez get in? Oh, absolutely. And I think in the Hall of Fame talk, he kind of got brushed over because there was, you know, obviously the two names who got in were huge names. You had Bagwell really close and the whole Bonds and Clemens talk. And I just kind of think Edgar Martinez kind of just got pushed to the side and nobody really talked about him and what he's done. And like you said, second best designated hitter. And yeah, I think DHs and bullpen do kind of get looked over because they don't, they're not playing all the time and designated hitter just hits and they don't play field, you know, 150 games out of 162 games. They might play first base. Like we see David Ortiz and then bullpen, you might not see them some of those pitchers for five or six games at a time. So 
I think he he absolutely got looked over, and I think he absolutely deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. definitely. I want to get your your thoughts on. Obviously, I wasn't on the show last week. Um, Trevor Hoffman, he's it was his first year on the ballot. He has sixty seven point three percent, so he came pretty darn close. But someone like him, same thing, bullpen. Like I had six hundred and one saves. What do you need to get in? I that was my question. If if I mean that's so many saves, and I just remember like how much hype around hype around there was when he got all those saves. Like he was just such so solid and so good. And I don't understand if why he's not in right now and what he needs to. Obviously, he can't really do anything anymore at this point. But it's. I mean, 601 saves. If he's not going to get in, what does that say for other closers around the league? Right. Like, is Rivera going to be the only closer who ever gets in the Hall of Fame? Because he's the only one who has more saves than, than Hoffman. Right? Isn't Hoffman second all-time? Yes, he is second all-time. Yeah. So, what does it take? I thought he was going to... I thought Hoffman was going to get in this year. I thought he was going to be first time on the ballot and in, and he came pretty close. But I assume we'll get it at some point. And I get, say, you know, closer, it's different. You pitch one inning, it's not the same as playing every day. So I think they, that DHs get even more of the shaft than, than bullpen does, because at least DHs play every day at the plate. But I still think, yeah, maybe maybe less bullpen guys get in, but when you're the second greatest closer in terms of saves, which could be considered the second greatest closer ever, because that's kind of what people base closing off of, you would think that at least that would get in, and I would think a lot earlier than than, like, the fourth or fifth time. So if he doesn't get in the next couple of years, I'm really going to start wondering wh- what these people who are voting are thinking. And like Chris said, I don't know, I guess I shouldn't get in their heads either because who knows what they're doing. Right, and I I mean, if I'm going to sit here, and obviously Rivera will get into the Hall of Fame, but if, if I sit here for the next ten years and watch Hoffman not get in, like, I I don't even know what that says for, for closers and what that says for baseball. Yeah, it's like closer's going to be like, I can never get in the Hall of Fame because the second best closer can't even get in, so what does that say for me? Right. <laughs> I don't I don't know. And that's, I mean, I'm sure that's why Jeff Bagwell, I do think, I agree with you, and he does deserve to get into the Hall of Fame, but that's probably why he got more votes than Hoffman. It's just the fact that he wasn't a bullpen pitcher. And he's also been in the ballot five more years. But yeah, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah. You're, you're right, though. You're totally right. All right, let's move on from the Hall of Fame. You guys discussed it for about three-fourths of the show last week, and we talked about it a lot with Chris, and we just talked about it some more. So I'd say we move on from that. Um, did you have anything else to say about Wakefield and Veritech before we move on to other stuff? I, I'm just I'm excited. I loved watching them grow up, and you know Wakefield spent 17 years with the Red Sox. That's more than half of my life. And I loved watching him. I loved that he was a slower pitcher, that he could pitch 50 to 70 miles an hour, and I loved the knuckleball, and I loved the things he did on and off the field. And the same thing with Veritek. I loved watching him. He called a great game, and he has great moments. The glove to A-Rod's face. Um, we have, when he, I remember this as clear as day, when he broke his elbow diving for a foul ball, and he kept throwing the ball back and forth. He's like, no, I'm fine. I can throw it. And his elbow ended up being broken. It's just like, that's the kind of guy you want on your team. You just He always pushed through and he wasn't the best offensive catcher, we know that, but he could call a hell of a game. Yeah, the two words that I that I think of when I think of both these guys, for Wakefield, consistency, for Veritek, comfort. So Wakefield, always a consistent pitcher. You know he was always going to pitch. He rarely got injured. He was always there. No, he wasn't the best pitcher in the world. Yes, he could give up 10 runs in two innings on, on occasion. But, you know, he was always going to be there. He's always going to pitch. He was always going to be there year after year. Didn't matter how old he got. He was just always there and such a good guy and just, you know, his demeanor. He's calm. He's, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't get upset. He doesn't get wicked happy. He's just, he's just right there. He's just a steady guy. And you want that with, with pitchers because it calms people down. You know, it's somebody to look to, a veteran presence. And I think he was perfect for that. And, and no, he's not the most exciting announcer on Nesson now because, He's never been the most exciting guy in the world, but he knows his baseball, and, and you know what you're going to get from him, and I still like listening to him because even if he isn't that exciting, you know what you're going to get, and sometimes with people, it's nice to know what you're going to get. Yeah, I could not agree more with that statement. And then in terms of Veritek, comfort, because whenever he was behind the plate, you knew that you were going to be in for a good game. You knew he was going to call a great game. He never wavered from that. He was always, always completely steady with calling games. It wasn't like he would just, like, 
blow up at some time and be like, oh, I can't call a game anymore. He's, you always knew he was going to call a fantastic game, no matter how much his knees hurt, no matter how much, how many problems he was having with physically. You know, he always do his best. No, he wasn't a great hitter, especially towards the latter part of his career. He was, he had a lot of trouble hitting, a lot of pop-ups, a lot of grounders. Couldn't run very well anymore, but he always gave his effort. He'd occasionally get the big hit, and he did what he needed to do, which was catch, and he was one of the best catchers in Red Sox history. Probably the best catcher in Red Sox history, and and I mean, yeah, I know he's probably not going to get in the Hall of Fame because his offensive numbers aren't good enough and everything, and it takes a rare a rare guy like Mike Piazza for a catcher to get in, but Veritek was a, a standout guy for this team, and like I said, when Chris was on, I was so sad when both of them retired. Oh, me too. And then even in their retiring press conferences, and you just saw the players who were there were just like legitimately upset. And of course, when you lose somebody like Veritek, who's your captain, you're essentially losing one of your leaders. And I'm sure that's hard enough for them. And then Wakefield is just such a nice guy and been part of the organization for so long. And I'm sure some of those players on the team were young too when they were probably watching him and then they get to play with him. And it's probably just like this whole like roller coaster of emotions that they go through when they retire. But we can take solace in the fact that they're both still with the organization with Veritek. I mean, Wakefield on Nesson and Veritek being a, an uh, assistant to the GM. So, And we got to see Veritek catch those four no-hitters. So, Yeah. <laughs> which has never happened before exactly. with a catcher in a team. So I can take pride in that. And just Tim Wakefield came close to no-hitters, I know, uh, a couple of times. So mm-hmm. I, I, he deserved one. He didn't get one. But we got to see two of the... One of the great, two of the greatest Red Sox players, I think. And it's nice to see them get appreciated because they deserve it. And they're not like they're not guys who will get in your face or be be all up in the reporters' faces. They just go about their business. So to see them get appreciated is is obviously great to see. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited for them. Yeah, I'm hoping they stick around. I hope Veritek stays with the team. Hey, maybe he'll be the Red Sox manager one day. We'll find out. I really hope. I think he'd be a great manager, for, especially for the Red Sox. Catchers always make good managers. They, they do. Al- they always do. They really do. So many, so many managers were catchers. If you really dig into the the details and figure out who did what, there's a lot of a lot of managers that were catchers. So that's that's what I'm sticking to. All right, um, want to remind all your Red Sox fans out here listening to the show to check out Bruins Beat on CLNS Radio. You tune in for news recaps and game previews along with news around the league. Tune in to the show as Jason Buckley and Michael Setapani host new Bruins Beat shows every Saturday. So we record on Sunday, they record on Saturday. You got all your all your Red Sox and Bruins coverage for the whole weekend every week with us. So I want to encourage everyone to please head over to the Bruins section of CLNS Radio after you check out the Red Sox section and check out Bruins Beat with Jason and Michael. What more could you want in a weekend? Seriously. Bruins Saturday, Red Sox Sunday. And Great. actually, Celtic Speed is on Sunday too, so you can have all your you know all your sports and Patriots play on Sunday most of the time. So your weekends are set here with CLNS Radio. That's for darn sure. Sure is. I like it. Yeah, absolutely. I know what I'm doing next weekend. <laughs> CLNS Radio all the time. I want to remind everyone. Actually, throw out some Twitter handles here um, because I didn't do it when Chris was on, but you can find Chris Villani on Twitter at Chris Villani44. His last name is spelled V-I-L-L-A-N-I, so Chris Villani, 44. You can find me at CLNS underscore Jess Sane. Then you can find Lauren at La 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 L-A-U-R-R-R-R-E-N. You did it. Pretty good, right? That, that was very good. And I didn't even look. I did that from memory. That was good. La 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 Lauren, four eyes. La La Lauren. So now instead of just people typing in a jumble of information, they can actually <laughs> type in letter for letter your Twitter handle, and find it. So please do that. Follow us all. Definitely follow Chris. He's a good follow. Does a lot of great stuff with WEI. Tell you from first-hand experience, because I've heard him numerous times on the radio. And if anyone gets to have their name said by Joe Castiglione, you know you're a fan of mine, So, <laughs> which he does. So, <laughs> All right. Let's move on to some stuff we didn't talk about with Chris a little bit here. Um, Josh Donaldson. Ugh. The Blue Jays and Donaldson, who was the MVP of the league in the American League last year. They headed to arbitration over $450,000. So, what, Donaldson won $11.8 million, and they wanted to give him $11 million, $11.3 million? Is that what it was? 
Yep, 11.35 if we're going to be exact, which is just absolutely ridiculous in terms of how much you, you know these guys make. And yeah. I, I'm reading some stats here, and it says the $450,000, it doesn't even buy a player for the MLB minimum salary anymore. Wow. Like, I don't, I mean, I understand you, you want to get paid, you want your money, he's the MVP, I, I get it. But think of it in terms when you have 11.8 million versus 11.3 million, like, come really on. That, is there really that much of a difference? Right, you want to play baseball, on. you want to play for the Jays, just, you're, you need to avoid this stupid arbitration thing. It's just so stupid, and it's like, if the Red Sox can do it with Joe Kelly, why can't they do it with Josh Donaldson? It's complete, I know it's a completely different scenario, but, like, come on, $450,000, just give me the $450,000 and call it even. <laughs> Sign him, give Lauren the money, and move on. <laughs> yep. <laughs> I'll, I'll split it with you. Uh, I love it. Yeah, seriously. Like, the Red Sox give Joe Kelly a one-year $2.6 million deal and avoid all that stuff. Yet, you have someone like Josh Donaldson, MVP of the league, and you can't even agree to a deal over $450,000. It's ridiculous. It just makes them look so petty. And, I, of course, this could be an agent thing as well. But I, I feel like they we rely on the agent excuse too much, like, these players are players, too. They have their own thoughts and feelings. They can tell their agent to screw, and they just want to take the 11.3 over the 11.8. Right, and avoid all this problem. And it's just, as I mentioned earlier in the show, you have Buck Showalter saying to Chris Davis, you walk into Target, you can buy whatever you want, right? So why are you being picky over a tiny bit of money? You have millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars. Same thing with Josh Donaldson making $11.8 million. Is that not enough, really? You have to argue about that? Come on. It's so dumb. And I know he's a great player. I know he, the Blue Jays have had a great run with him. But it's, it's like, and I'm reading now, it says the difference is 3.89%. So round up 4%. <laughs> you guys sound ridiculous fighting over 4%. Seriously. I don't even have anything to say about it. It's just, I, I get so sick of the little petty, like, money things. Like, you're making so much more money than... Most people in their lives are going to come even close to making, and you're being picky about four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Give it to me. Give it to you. Give it to me. Give it to whoever. Yeah, just it's so dumb, and it's, it, this can turn this can turn ugly quick. And I don't want it to because I I don't want to think negatively of of Donaldson, and I don't want to think negatively of the Blue Jays organization because they I like the Blue Jays, and I think they've really turned around in the last few years. But if they're it, it's isn't like arbitration. Like it's basically going to court. It's so stupid. I, I have nothing to say about it. I know. I, I, yeah. <laughs> so that's what happened. Josh Donaldson <laughs> had an arbitration over four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Good luck to him. Um, Grandstand is a new sports app that we are using here on CLNS Radio. It's sports highlights straight from the crowd. Really cool app. You can share your own sports highlights and watch videos straight from the crowd, all from the fans' perspective. You can download this Grandstand app on the App Store at grandstand.me. Definitely recommend checking it out. They use it a lot for uh, Celtics, post -game, uh, Celtics Garden Report shows after the home games, um, taking, taking the, uh, fans, the fans' videos from the crowd right on the app. It's really cool. So make sure you check out Grandstand on the App Store or grandstand.me. All right. Do you want to talk about Chris Davis at all, or do we pretty much cover that? Uh, we pretty much covered it. I'm, um, he's with the Orioles, and I'm, he got overpaid. Good for him. Yep, 53 homers in 2013, 47 in 2015. We'll see how he does this year. Tons of strikeouts. He had 208 strikeouts last <laughs> year, which led the league, obviously. Because <laughs> if you get over 208, if over 200 strikeouts, like Chris said... It's not quite a third. He had 670 um, plate appearances, but it's almost a third. <laughs> it's pretty close to a third of, of the... Uh, it's like 50 short of a third of his at-bats for strikeouts. So they can have him. Obviously, it makes a difference, but it's a lot of money for a guy who's probably in three years going to fall off the map like most guys do. So yep. we'll see what happens. All right, we got some... We'll go over these uh, quick notes here. Um... Ian Kennedy signed a five-year, $70 million deal with the Royals recently. Um, yes, he's filling their, assuming probably a four or five spot in their rotation, because he's a good pitcher, but he's certainly not a top-of-the-rotation guy. And I've been seeing a lot of stuff kind of overpaid for him, because five-year, $70 million is a lot for like a four or five-star. What are your thoughts on the deal? Um, I think it's a good deal. 
Um, he can opt out after 2017, so if something goes wrong in the next year, he can just leave. And five years, it's not, it's, it's long term, yes, but it's not as long as some of these other deals that we've seen. Um, At least it's not seven or eight. Exactly. And, um, he's not a terrible pitcher, and I know the Royals are hoping they sign the better version of Kennedy over the bad version. Of course, you don't never want a bad pitcher in your rotation, but it's, Kind of, I think it's more of a they're like a short-term fill-in kind of deal. So, I mean, hopefully it works out for them, but you never know what you're going to get with him. He's wildly inconsistent. He's yeah. nine and ten season, twenty-one and four, where he came fourth in Cy Young, two eighty at ERA, fifteen and twelve, um, seven and ten, thirteen and thirteen, nine and fifteen. Madly inconsistent. His ERA for his career is three ninety-eight. So he's definitely. I mean, he's got flashes of, of definitely of greatness, but he's had trouble getting it consistently year to year. He's 31 years old now, so five-year deal, I mean, it just makes the Royals better, obviously, because they're not looking for him to be their number one pitcher. So, I think good deal. They probably overpaid for him, but it seems like everyone's overpaying for everybody nowadays. So for the show today. Right. Um, speaking of contracts, uh, the Nationals re-signed Steven Strasburg to a one-year $10.4 million, so they will attempt again one more time to see if he can stay healthy and ever be the pitcher that anyone wants him to be, because so far he really hasn't been. He hasn't been. It's been so disappointing because there's so much hype around him. He's such a fast thrower, and I know he has a Tommy John surgery, which is hard enough to come back to come back from. Um, what I do like is they avoided arbitration, unlike the Blue Jays. Um, 10.4, I mean, it's for a year, so hopefully, like you said, they're going to try to get him on track. They're going to, he's going to try to be the pitcher that we know that's why the Nationals signed him. And he can, he's, like, I'm going to go back to it. He's such a fast thrower, and I love when pitchers can throw really fast. And it's obviously it's been hard for him with his injuries. I just hope this year he can just bounce back because he's not, he's not that old. He's still pretty young. Yeah, I mean, he's not been around for that long. He's just, it's just been such a struggle because of how, how many times he's gotten injured. He's only 27. I mean, he's obviously a guy who has a lot of potential. And he was supposed to be one of the best pitchers, like, ever when he came to the league. Cause he was, yep. he was such, so hyped, such a phenom. And he, you know, he's numerous seasons where he's had just a couple starts and had to miss time here, miss time there. Obviously he's good, but I don't think he's ever going to be what they want him to be. And that's the thing with injuries. Like, you can be as good as you want to be. Like, Clay Buckholz, for example, is kind of a good example of comparison. Obviously, Strasburg is supposed to be a lot better than Buckholz, but, Buckholz the same kind of guy. who He could be a really good pitcher. He has been a really good pitcher, but he just can't stay healthy. And if you can't stay healthy like Strasburg, you're not as good of a pitcher because you can't do it consistently, which means no one's going to care what you're doing because you're not doing it consistently. Right, and when you have what's supposed to be a good pitcher, you want them to be consistent. You don't want them to have three good starts and then eight bad ones because you're going to focus on those eight bad, bad ones and be like, why are we still letting him pitch? Why is he giving up? four runs and he's still on the mound. Like, we're going to think so negatively of these people who aren't bad, but when they're hyped up to be so good, we, if they have a few bad starts and we hate them. And stretch that out to, a, to, like, seasons. If you have one great season where you're 17 and 4, and then you have four straight seasons where you're under 500, that, 20, that 17 and 4 season is fantastic, but people are going to look at your overall numbers and see that you had under 500, under 500, under 500, not going to think you're so good anymore. Nope, and I mean it's it's too bad for these for these pitchers because obviously they know the hype that's around them, and I'm sure they feel those nerves and they get injured. They're probably like, great, awesome. <laughs> yep, a lot, of, <laughs> a lot of pressure when you're supposed to be one of the best pitchers in the league. Just ask Strasburg, just ask Buckholz. So yep. <laughs> the Cardinals re-signed Trevor Rosenthal. I think a really good move for them. He's one of the best closers in the league. Still really young, really good pitcher. Yeah, I think that's a great signing for them. I'm excited for that. So, I mean, it's the Cardinals. They're always in the playoffs, and they're never talked about. But um, I think same thing. They'll, they're going to get – they're going to do fine this year. And re-signing him, it's going to be – they're going to be fine. Guy's a stud. 25 years old. Uh, great pitcher. He had 48 saves last year, 45 saves the year before. He really came onto the scene. You know, he kind of started in 2013 in um, their – the World Series here against the Red Sox, so we saw a lot of him, and I've kind of followed his, his uh, career path since we saw him that year, because I 
you know, he, he caught my eye. He comes in the league. He's 23 years old, throwing 99 miles, 100 miles per hour. I was like, wow, this guy's really good. Sure enough, the last two years, you know, 320 ERA, 210 ERA in the 40s and saves. Huge strikeout guy. He's a really good pitcher. Let's just hope uh, he stays consistent and stays healthy because, like, the last two people <laughs> we've talked about, <laughs> draft bustles. bustles. Uh, just let's hope that he can be just healthy for this team. Yeah, no, it will definitely benefit them. And Jonas Cespedes, as you mentioned earlier, he was thought to possibly go into the Orioles. Now we don't know. There's more talk of, could he go back to the Mets? Where is this guy going to land? I have no idea, and I don't think he's going to settle for one two-year deal. Um, I've heard the Mets, I've heard um, Braves, White Sox, Tigers, Angels, obviously the Orioles. Um, probably, I, they're not going to sign him now. They've got Chris Davis, but I don't. I don't know. I don't know why he wouldn't want to go back to the Mets. I think he fit in really well there. Um, I don't. The, uh, the other teams I mentioned, I don't see him really fitting in per se. I, I think he really meshed well with the Mets. I think he just that was a good spot for him. I think he's a headache overall. I've always. I mean, I've said this numerous times, and no one really seems to agree with me much. But he seems like a head case to me. He was kind of all over the place at the Red Sox. He's you know, throwing the ball like into the stands from the outfield. He's just kind of out of control and doesn't really seem like he knows what he wants and clearly now doesn't even know where to go to what team. So I'm just not going to worry about it because he. I don't think he's going to make that much of a difference either way. I don't think he's going to be a huge difference maker wherever he ends up. And uh, I agree with you to a point. He has kind of a head case. Um, his head doesn't seem to be in the game as much as these other players. But I, at the end of the day, I think he's going to go back to the Mets. All right, we'll see. I'm not going to make a prediction because it'll probably just be wrong anyway. <laughs> I've been making predictions this off season, so uh, I'll probably be wrong. He's going to go to like the Astros or something. He'll go to the Red Sox again. <laughs> oh, I don't want him. I'm still mad at him for coming here over for Leicester. Yeah, I don't, I don't want him either. So mad at him. Yeah, he got a bad rap right from the beginning with us <laughs> for who we traded. <laughs> yeah, for like really, we got him for Leicester. <laughs> and then he just leaves a couple months later. Yeah. All right, let's finish the show with one more thing here. Um. The Sunday Night Baseball crew was announced for next year. It'll be Dan Schulman, Aaron Boone, and Jessica Mendoza. So we have a female. She was a great, a great softball player, um, really well known, and she is now going to be the permanent fixture with the two of them on Sunday Night Baseball. Especially, obviously, being a girl who's obviously hugely into sports and wants to get into sports for a career. I want to get your thoughts on her being the permanent announcer for Sunday Night Baseball. I'm so excited, and like you said, I i mean, my end goal is to get to where she is, and I think it's great. I think it's great for Sunday Night Baseball. I think it's great who she's going to be with. I think she's going to do great, and I, am, I read an article where she said that there's a lot of pressure on her, and she said one thing that I really enjoyed. She said, if I make a mistake, it, legitima- it legitimizes why I shouldn't be there. If someone else makes a mistake, it's all in the moment. For me, there's a macro picture that goes along with the good and the bad, and I'm like, that's so true because people are going to look at that and be like, oh, she, should, she shouldn't be on the show. She messed up or she messed up his name or she messed up a stat. Like, simple mistakes that everybody makes. And I think there's a, there's a lot of pressure on her, but I think she's just, I'm so excited for this. I think she's a really good fit for Sunday Night Baseball. Yeah, it's not fair to have all that pressure, but it obviously comes to the territory of not having as many women be in these kind of prominent roles. But like you said, it makes it great a great impression for people like you who want to do things like she's doing, and she's doing it, and it's happening, and it's real, which is fantastic. So I love it. She's a great announcer. I mean, I've, I've listened to her numerous times. She really knows her baseball. Yeah, and it's great when you have somebody who knows what they're talking about, and you can just tell. They're not just standing in front of the camera reading. Like, she really knows what she's doing. And in the article that I read, there's a picture of her. She's got her phone in her hand. She's writing down stats. She's just got all the stuff in front of her. I'm like, she just looks ready and so prepared, and she just seems somebody who's seems like somebody who's just so into this job, and she's just worked really hard to get there. And I'm sure she wants to pave the way for other women who want to be this involved in sports. Yeah, being a, being a former player obviously helps with that. She knows the game. She played the game. Obviously, if you play, you know more. That's why so many players become announcers. It makes perfect sense. So good for her. I'm I'm thrilled that they made her an official one. It's definitely groundbreaking, and hopefully. You know, you have a lot of women sideline announcers, but you don't have a lot of women announcing, period. You know, Doris Burke is one who pops out because she's done a ton of a ton of sports and is a great announcer, too. So there aren't really that many examples. 
to be honest. No, so. there's really not, and I, I'm, I'm just so I'm excited for this. And when when they made this announcement, I was like, oh, this is awesome. I know. I immediately messaged you and was like, we're talking about this because this is great. <laughs> like, absolutely, I'm so pumped. And I think that was like Tuesday or Wednesday. I'm like, is it Sunday? Because I'm so ready for the show. <laughs> And that was the show, and a great show it was. Um, once again, remind remind everyone that this show that you just listened to, Red Sox Beat, was brought to you by Casper Mattresses. And they're great, comfortable mattresses. They have the right sink and bounce. You can buy it online easily, completely risk-free. Recommend trying to sleep on one because it is a great experience. So make sure you head over to casper.com slash Celtics in your promo code Celtics and get $50 off any mattress purchase. That will do it for the show. I want to thank Chris Villani very much for coming on our show today. Once again, follow him at ChrisVillani44 on Twitter. Follow Red Sox beat at Red Sox underscore beat. Chris was great. We talked about a lot of a lot of stuff, so I encourage you, if you're tuning in at a random part in the show, head back to the beginning, check out what Chris had to say. He was a great guest. I want to thank Lauren for getting Chris on to the show. Excellent. Thank you. I'm glad I could help, and I'm glad he agreed to it. Um, so, like I said, big thanks to Chris. Yeah, that was that was a lot of fun. Our first guest in a while, so first guest of the new year. The first guest of the new year, right? Start 2016 off right. All right, that's going to do it for us here. You're Lauren Campbell. I'm Jess Thomas. This is Red Sox Beat, and we will be back in just a short week. <laughs> <laughs>